If you're staying in here with us, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. If you don't have one, you can grab one out of the pew or you can follow along on the screen. Well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. And we're going to look at three uh, different uh, but connected stories this morning. And I just want to get right into it. We're almost uh, to the end. <laughs> Some of you thought we might never get here in the book of Luke. <laughs> but we're almost to the end. We're getting down to it. There's only a couple stories left before we enter into the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, and we're going to spend uh, this spring up until Easter looking at that. Uh, but this is one of the last couple stories before Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. Um, and today, Jesus is going to talk about eternal life. He's going to address the issue of eternal life uh, with those around him, uh, specific people, but also with his disciples and their doubts about it. And the, and the point today is this. None of us gets eternal life because of good works, because of money, because of family connections, because of anything that we do the only way any of us gets eternal life is because of God's mercy. That's the point today, and that's what we're going to see in this text. So let's start in verse 18, Luke 18, 18. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is none who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. 
But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the clear instruction that it gives us, God, that there is no good works, there, there, are no, there is no amount of money, there is no family connection, there is no anything that we can do to inherit eternal life, God. We are all sinners who fall short and do not measure up, God. We do not deserve to be with you, God. But we thank you for your word that through your death, burial, and resurrection, God, we can have mercy. God, you can and will show us mercy through Jesus, God. And so we thank you that as we've studied this and we've seen this, God, over and over, God, that you receive us not based on our, our works, God, because every single one of us falls short, God but that you desire to extend mercy. And so we worship you this morning for that, and we pray that you would help us to understand it more. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so in our story, it starts out in verse 18, and there's a ruler. Uh, some have called him the rich young ruler. He's described in those ways throughout the Gospels. Uh, and this man comes to Jesus. He's a leader in their synagogue. He's a religious man. And he comes to Jesus with a, a very deep, honest, real question. What's his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? He, he's asking a really good question. How, how can I be saved? How can I go to heaven? What is the end of all of these things? Right? He's asking about eternal things. He's got a mind for spiritual things. And so he's, he's asking a good question. But we notice, uh, if you notice, hopefully, that his, his question is also off in a couple of ways. Right? He, he's asking what he must do. Right? What is it that I need to do? What can I do for you? What do I? And you can see in his question that he feels uh, an emptiness. He feels like he hasn't actually done it. He hasn't done enough. So we can tell he's off a little bit right there. But he also asks, how can I inherit eternal life? Inherit is a family term of I'm going to inherit not my dad's wealth, but my dad's debt when he dies, right? I'm going to inherit that. And, and so his question is off in a sense because he's wondering, uh, am I a part of the right family? How, how do I get this because of my connections to others? And, and he, he's asking a good question, but he's, his expectation, there's either something he can do or some family he can rely on to deserve this. And Jesus speaks to him and he asks him, verse 19, says, why do you call me good? None is good except God alone. And so Jesus is challenging this ruler's uh, worldview, his perception of things. And this ruler thinks that, again, what, what must I do? That, that goodness is based on what we do, the things we do, the, th the amount of money we give, the, the places we go, the people we associate with, the, the old ladies we help across the street, the, all, the kids, all, all that stuff. 
that, we, that goodness is associated with our external actions. But Jesus says what? He says the only one who is good is God alone. Jesus is pointing him to this, that, that goodness is not based on what we do, but goodness is who God is. And goodness is only found completely and perfectly in God. He's the only one who's really true and perfect. And we all fall short. So Jesus is challenging his question. And he says in verse 20, he says, you know the commandments. And he lists off a couple of the Ten Commandments, the big ten words that God gave Moses in the wilderness. And Jesus knows this man understands the Old Testament. He's a ruler of the synagogue. He's, he, he's asking the right questions. And this man would have understood for him as a Jew to be in right relationship with God. He had to follow the commandments. He had to keep them. And if he didn't, he had to uh, follow the commandments to find forgiveness by sacrificing an animal or giving a certain thing on a certain time of the year. And, and so this man understood that the path to being sinless was to keep the commandments, participate in the sacrifices. And so he says, you, you, you know what it takes to be with God forever. And what does the man say? Verse 21. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. He says, in essence, the insinuation is that he is perfect. He is perfect good. He's done it all. He, there's nothing he's ever messed up on. And if he did, he did, the forget, he did the sacrifice in order to do it. He's saying, in essence, I've kept these commandments. I've done this. Since I was a young man, I've not strayed from God's ways. That is a, a bold statement. I don't know that any of us would be so bold to say that we have kept God's way perfectly since we were a youth. That's exactly the time of life you don't keep God's way perfectly, right? But this man has the audacity to insinuate that he is good, that he is right, that he is true, not God. Now, I don't know if he's telling the truth. Maybe he was actually a really, really, you know, buttoned down straight man who had done all these things. I don't know if he's exaggerating. I don't know if he's just straight up lying to Jesus. But we know that Jesus knows his heart. And Jesus immediately says that he is lacking something. And I think he's speaking to this guy's heart because the man would not have asked this question if he didn't feel like he was lacking something, if he didn't feel like there was an emptiness in him. And so Jesus says, there is one thing that you lack. Now that means that he is not good. He is not perfect. He is, he has fallen short. And here's what Jesus points out in verse 22. It says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. It's actually two things, right? Sell it all and come follow me. But the, the thing that had control over this man's heart was not God in keeping his commandments. What had control over this man's heart? His money, his possessions, his wealth. And we see that very clearly in this story. He may have kept the Sabbath. He may have never eaten pork. But he missed out so much on a relationship with God because he was mostly consumed with what he could get, what he could have. 
He was, he was controlled not by love for others and generosity to others. No, he was controlled by his love for money. And Jesus has made it very clear, you cannot love both God and money, for you will serve the one and hate the other or love the one and hate the other, right? And so Jesus makes it very clear in this man's heart. He points out the heart issue in this guy's life. That yeah, you've got all the external stuff down. You're following the letter of the law to a T. But your heart loves something else. And so how do, how, what does he say? He tells him to get rid of it all. Get rid of the thing that's keeping you from God. That's, you want to you be with God forever? Then get rid of that thing. Repent. Turn from that thing. And turn to God. Come follow me. And what does he do? Verse 23. It says, When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. <laughs> the only reason you get sad in this instance is if your love for that thing that you have to give up is more than the thing that you would have gained. If he loved Jesus more, if he loved God more, if he loved others more, and he had to give up something that was a lesser love, he would not have been sad. He would not have mourned over this. But you can see, based on his reaction, what he really loved. And what mattered to him most was what was right in front of him in his pockets, not something of eternal weight. And so Jesus, the other Gospels, tells us that this man goes away. He goes away sad. This is the end of the story for him. Now, we don't know what happens to him. Maybe later in life he turns. Who knows? But Jesus, at this moment, as this ruler leaves, he turns to his disciples and he begins to see the, the quandary going on in their head and the difficulty of this teaching. And so Jesus says in verse 24, seeing that he was sad, he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is going to uh, speak to his disciples now. And it's, it's not, just hear me, this is not a sermon about money at all. This is not about money. This is the presenting issue. But the heart issue in this is about eternal life. It's about closeness with God. And so it says, Jesus says, it is how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He's speaking to his disciples, who, by the way, are not wealthy, but he's teaching them anyway about this. But I think when we have wealth, and he knows that when, when we have wealth, we are prone to believe that we can do it on our own. We're prone to believe that we can control things, that we can get what we need when we need it, that we can influence other people when we have more than we need. When we're, when we're, when we're wealthy, we have a sense of pride, not humility, because we can take care of it, because we have enough. And Jesus is saying that heart attitude of I can control, I, can, I have enough, I can do this on my own, is anti what it takes to enter the kingdom. Entering the kingdom takes this immense humility that I can't do this, God, that I've got to trust you, that you're going to show up, that, that I don't have enough, that I fall short. Entering the kingdom takes that kind of attitude. And he goes on in verse 25. He says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now this imagery is staggering. And kids, if you're taking notes in here, that'd be a great thing to draw right now. An eye of a needle and a camel, okay? So I want to see them. Bring them to me at the end. I want to see. Well, I'll give you $5 or something. No, I won't give you my money. Uh, sorry. 
This is anti-money, so. Uh, this imagery is staggering, right? The eye of a needle, tiny. I can't do it. I can't get the thread through the needle still to this day. I took Miss Harris's middle school home ec class. Can't do it. A camel is big. I have a needle, it's small. And what is Jesus saying? That would be easier than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God on the basis of his riches. He's not saying that there won't be rich people in heaven. That's not it at all. That's not the point. The point is, a rich person can't enter heaven on the basis of his riches. Because that's not what gets you into heaven. It's not about your money. It's not about your wealth. No, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The point is this, money doesn't buy you access to the kingdom. Money doesn't buy you access. That's not it. Just as good works don't buy you access to the kingdom. It's not enough. It falls short. And, and your money doesn't do it. And it's the same in your family. We saw it in his question. Your family doesn't buy you access to the kingdom. What buys you access to the kingdom? Mercy, as we're going to see here in a minute. Only faith and mercy. Now, his disciples hear this, and they've got questions. As I, I'm sure some of you, when you get to heaven, you're going to ask Jesus about this text. There's been a lot of questions asked about this text through the years. But his disciples, they ask this question, verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? They're in disbelief, not, not because Jesus said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, they're in disbelief because Jesus is saying this ruler is not there because this ruler was good. This ruler had kept the commandments. He had led in their religion. He, he had money, which meant that God, in their mind, had blessed him. That meant that he probably gave away money. Right? He was the picture of religious success and worldly success, and they're going, if this guy's not saved, if this guy doesn't have it, then who can be saved? They're thinking, if it's not him, there's no hope for any of us. He's got all the externals. And Jesus says, no, it's impossible. Money doesn't buy you access. Family doesn't buy you access. Good works doesn't buy you access. And Jesus says a very quotable verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, Jesus is not talking here about, uh, I can't just write this verse on my forearm and all of a sudden deadlift 500 pounds, okay? That's not what this verse is talking about, right? I can't just write this on my forehead and, and all of a sudden become a billionaire, right? This is not what this text, what is he talking about? It's very clear. The thing that is impossible for man to do, what is it? To enter heaven on his own, to have eternal life on his own. That's what's impossible with men. And he says that is possible with God. The, the entrance into the kingdom is possible through God. And Peter speaks up and he says, verse 28, See, we have left our homes and followed you. <laughs> it's almost like Peter just can't help but hold his tongue. And so he's got to say something. He's like, I know that guy didn't leave his stuff, but Jesus, remember, we left our homes, and we, we're following you. What does that get us? And Jesus looks at him, and he makes it very clear. Verse 29, he says, 
Truly I say to you, there's, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying, whatever loss you've had, Peter, it's going to be worth it. Whatever loss you've had on this earth, I promise you, it's going to be worth it. Whether it's in this time or in eternal life to come. And I think Peter's wrestling with a little bit of this, man, I left my family for this. Man, I left my home for this. Is this, is this really going to be worth it if that guy didn't get in? And now here I am. I... And Jesus says, no, it's worth it. I don't think this means that there's a ledger and there's a direct one-to-one, you lost this, so God's going to give you this. I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. But Jesus is saying, whatever cost you experience, the reward in Christ is worth it. Now he keeps going, verse 31. And I want you to see how these three stories connect to each other. In verse 31, he says this, And taking the twelve... He said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus is very close to the end of his life. He's just maybe a few days away from entering into Jerusalem where he will have one more week and he will accomplish all that he has been sent to do. And that's where they're headed. They're they're about to be in Jericho. But he, he tells them so clearly just a few days before What's going to happen? And he says in verse 32, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man, he's talking about himself, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus says it as clear as he has said anything, right? He said a lot of things in parables. He said a lot of things in figurative language. This is as clear language as you can get. Jesus lays it out that the Jewish leaders, they're going to deliver him over to the Gentile rulers who are in charge. Why? So that he can be put to death. And while Jesus is on trial, he's going to be mocked. He's going to be shamed. He's going to be shamefully treated, even spit upon. He's going to be treated like the lowest of the low in their society, the worst of their criminals. That's how Jesus is going to be treated. They're going to flog him. It means beat him and strike him with 39 lashes of the cat of nine tails to torture him in a slow, agonizing way as to make an example of him, right? Jesus knows what's coming. Then they're going to nail his arms. They're going to falsely convict him. They're going to nail his arms. That means put a nail through his arms and through his feet and nail him to a cross until he slowly suffocates to death in his own body fluids in his lungs. Jesus... (laughs) Like, I have anxiety thinking about that. And Jesus knows this is coming. What a terrible way to die. And he lays it out to his disciples. And he says, this is what the prophets said. Now, here's the deal. His disciples, verse 34, says, But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. 
it seems like they were kept from understanding this because I don't know how you could hear this and not understand this. But it says this is really straightforward. This is not parables. Even though Jesus is very clear about what's going to happen. But I think, I think partly is this. They, they couldn't fathom that this is what God had sent his Messiah to do. The, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who would come and redeem them and rescue them and restore the kingdom of God and, and build the kingdom of God, that, he's not going to get flogged and mocked and beaten. That's not, that doesn't fit. Jesus, I, maybe this is a parable. Maybe we'll understand this later. But they don't understand. They don't grasp what Jesus is talking about. Now, why is this story positioned right here? And, and we're about to read another one real quickly. We don't have time. Okay, we're going to do it anyway. Why? Why is this positioned right here? Why does Luke put this right here? Why does Jesus speak this right here? It's set between a man who walks away from Jesus because the cost was too high. A man who, who chooses wealth and earthly success over following Jesus. And the next story is about a poor blind man who simply cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's, it's set in the middle of these two people. And, and it's, I think it's meant to answer the question of the first story. Jesus is answering the question of how can I inherit eternal life? He reminds them, this is why I was sent to be crucified, to be buried, and to rise again. This is the pinnacle of the story of all of Scripture. This is the place that all roads lead. This is the place that we all look up to, whether we're before it or we're after it. We're all pointing up to this story, and this story stands in the middle of these two stories. It's the pinnacle. And the point Jesus is making is this. If you don't believe burial and resurrection then you cannot be saved <laughs> it's impossible without this what is impossible with man has now become possible through this through the death burial and resurrection of Jesus and the only way we can be saved is if we have faith if we have faith and that's what this last story is about let's look at it verse 35 as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. This is one of the last stories recorded before Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's about 18 miles away, and probably there's a number of people heading on this road from Jerusalem to, uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so this blind man, whether his friends had put him there or whether he had put himself there, he's positioned himself in a good spot, right? There's some good spots if you want to beg, if you want to ask some people to help, right? Find the people that are, that are on a pilgrimage to go worship God. They're going to be more willing to give, and, and there's going to be a lot of people. You've got a big market, right? Now, what he hears, though, is something different than maybe his normal experience. And he hears a crowd going by, something bigger than just a few pilgrims passing by. He hears a crowd. And so he wonders, is this somebody of dignity? Is this somebody of, of royalty? Or is this, is this somebody important? And so he asks, who's passing by? I think it's important for, for you to just maybe even close your eyes as we talk about this. This man is blind. He doesn't see anything. Just put yourself in his spot. He hears a crowd. Okay, well, what's going on? Who is this? What, 
this, this is important. What does this mean? And he asks. And they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is the reason. Jesus, you know, from Nazareth, he's coming by. There's no explanation. There's no anything. Just Jesus of Nazareth, as if this man's supposed to know. And this man does know. This blind man, though he has not, think about this, has not seen any miracles that Jesus has done. Though he has not seen any works that Jesus has performed to prove that he is the Christ. He's heard about it. He's heard from lots of different people what had happened. And though he had not seen with his own eyes, he's heard it with his ears. And he's believed in his heart. He didn't witness any of this personally. He just heard about it. And he knows who this Jesus is. This isn't just Jesus of Nazareth. This isn't just Jesus of Joseph and Mary. This is not just another uh, teacher. He says his words. What does he say? Verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, not son of Joseph, not son of man. Who's he say? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David. Now that is a huge statement. Not to us. doesn't mean anything to us. David's just another word. We got like four of them in our church today. Right? He says, Jesus, son of David. David is the king who's been, what's been promised in the Old Testament is that there would be a king who would sit on David's throne forever. That the coming king, the Messiah, would be a son of David. And so when he says, not Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He's not seen it. He can't see. He's blind. But he knows and he's heard it and he believes that this is the Messiah who comes to accomplish the will of the Lord. And so he calls out not just his name but his title, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. He's begging for a miracle. He's begging for the Messiah to do what the Messiah came to do. In verse 39, this is us. Those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. (laughs) I don't know how many times he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Think about it. He's blind. He doesn't even know which way to look. Sorry, I've been fascinated by that this week. He doesn't know. He's totally blind. He's just shouting randomly. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Like what faith? This is his only hope. He's got nothing else besides begging on this side of the road. And I don't know how many times he had to do it, but people got annoyed with it, right? People got tired of it, said, stop. He heard you. Stop. Be quiet. Respect him. But this man did not just have a little bit of faith. He had persistent faith that Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the Son of David was there and he could save him. And so he cried out all the more. Verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, Not an insignificant word. Lord, let me recover my sight. Eventually, he gets the attention of Jesus. And Jesus brings him to him. And he asks him, hey, what do you want me to do for you? And he's already said it. Have mercy on me. Jesus asked this obvious question. The man doesn't want some money. 
He doesn't want a meal. He says, I want mercy. I need mercy. He doesn't need temporary relief. He's had that, and it doesn't last. He is crying for a miracle from the miracle man. And Jesus, verse 42, said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Jesus actually just speaks one word to him. It's the word see. Not recover your sight. See. It's a command. He just commands, see. And his eyes, though it's a simple command, have no choice but to obey. His eyes, all of a sudden, see. They have no choice but to obey the king. And immediately he sees, it says, your faith has made you well. Literally, this is the word, your faith has saved you. Right? So Jesus has something much more in picture here than just, hey, your faith in me has allowed you to see. I, I fixed your eye condition. No, no, no. This is your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you whole, has made you well, has made you complete. And it says immediately, verse 43, he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. What seemed impossible to him and to all the people there is now possible. What seemed impossible, the blind receiving sight, has, has visibly been shown to be possible. Why? Because God is present. And not only that, what seemed impossible with man, that any of us could have eternal life, has now become possible. It seemed impossible that any of us could be saved, and yet Jesus says, your faith has saved you. The only reason is, why? Because God is there. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And I think these stories are put together for this one simple reason. That as we think about eternal life, as we think about salvation, we must be like the blind poor man. Shouting whatever direction we can think to shout, God have mercy on me. That is the essence of what it means to be saved. God have mercy on me. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't deserve this. I know I deserve death because of my sin and because of my brokenness. But God, have mercy on me. That's how we are saved. That's how you can be saved. It's not like the rich young man who brings your resume to God. This is what I did. This is what I have. This is who I know. That's not it at all. That's the opposite of salvation. You'll walk away sad. How do we walk away glad today? God, have mercy on me, a sinner who knows I need you. And so the simple application today for every single one of us is this. If you've never been saved, if you don't know Jesus, maybe you come to church a lot, but you don't have a relationship with God, cry out, God, have mercy on me. Let me pray. God, every single one of us is much more like the poor blind man than we'd like to admit, God. And we don't have enough we don't have what it takes. And we're wander, wandering around in darkness, desperate, without hope. God, and I pray that today, as some have heard the good news, that there is a Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David who has come, that they would cry out to him, 
Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. God, and I pray that you would save those who do not know you. God, you would start a relationship with them. God, you would rescue them from a life of sin and a life in the kingdom. God, I pray that you would do that today. God, whether it's the young in the room who maybe have understood that for the first time or whether it's the old, God, who have been playing church and involved in all that stuff for a long time but know in their heart of hearts that their heart is far from you. God, I pray that their primary love today would be for you and that they would cry out in faith, God, have mercy on me. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.